What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Joe Navarro. He's a former FBI agent, author, and a world expert in body language. Becoming an exceptional communicator is a superpower. No matter what your job or goals in life, the better you are at communicating, the better your outcomes will be. Joe led the FBI's nonverbal communication division and SWAT operations whilst catching and turning spies for 25 years. Today, we get to hear his best advice. Expect to learn the biggest mistakes people make when setting up to talk to someone in a room, why self-awareness can save lives, how to control your emotions more effectively, how to de-escalate an intense confrontation, how to be better at small talk, and much more. These guys, man, that have been in the Bureau or the CIA or some sort of special forces for years, they have an unlimited number of stories. It's crazy. It feels like they've been alive for a thousand generations and they've just got this endless bucket that they can dip into. Joe is a sick guy and there's tons to take away from today. I didn't realize about the furrowing of the brow or the way that you're supposed to sit adjacent to someone when you try and have a conversation to get something out of them in a room, whether you're a boss trying to have better interviews or someone who's constantly having conversations with people where you might need them to be on side. I think there is a, there's a lot of tactics that you can use from today. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now it's time for the wise and wonderful Joe Navarro. Joe Navarro, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Chris. For the people who aren't familiar with you and your background, where have you gone that's led you to this point? Not very far, you know, 25 years in the FBI where uh, I, I got to play as a SWAT team commander, spy catcher, and uh, bureau pilot. Uh, I was the FBI's body language expert, and then I retired and wrote 14 books, and uh, so not much. <laughs> yeah, a, a uh, colorful career path, I think you could say. What's the? What are those different um, elements within the Bureau there for the people that haven't got a clue what you're talking about? Yeah, well, you know, within the FBI, uh, we have a lot of sub-programs. So uh, I, when I entered into the Bureau, I was already a, a licensed pilot, and we were always in need of pilots because we use uh, uh, aircraft as platforms for surveillance. So I, I got to do that, and then... <laughs> 
they they wanted volunteers, which means I was pushed into uh, going into the SWAT program because you know sometimes you're up against some um, uh, some pretty dastardly groups. And uh, spent 14 years as uh, on a SWAT team uh, in uh, Puerto Rico and then in, in Tampa and uh, and uh, doing counterterrorism investigations. But mostly, you know, I spent those 25 years. So so you can do other things within the FBI. Um, I was uh, part of the National Security's uh, uh, behavioral program, which uh, looked at uh, human behavior. And uh, and actually, that's really what led me um, not only my spy catching, but uh, but led me to uh, to to begin to write books. And uh, and in fact, the the, the first book uh, that I wrote with uh, Jack Schaefer uh, really was I was getting ready to retire from the FBI and, and people were saying, you know, there's all this knowledge that you have but you're taking it with you. Uh, wh- why don't you share it? And uh, I never, I never intended to, to uh, be a writer. Um, I, in fact, I often say I'm, I'm a writer I'm, or an author. I'm really not a writer. I know what a good writer is. Uh, I'm sure you know the, the, uh, the difference, but um, you know, all, all in all, it's, it's, uh, it was a, a fantastic experience. And, um, and obviously you, you learn a lot. Um, you know, I got to work with, uh, uh British intelligence. I worked, I worked with, uh, German intelligence, uh, um, and just different folks around the world. And it's, uh, it makes for an interesting, uh, career. What's the difference between SWAT in Puerto Rico and SWAT in Tampa? Well, the the difference was that each each major city has its own uh, SWAT team, and when I transferred to to Puerto Rico, there we were dealing mostly with uh, uh, counterterrorism. Uh, when I came to Tampa, then it became uh, more uh, in, in the area of uh, uh, criminal activity, uh, drug gangs, uh, w- with a lot of firepower and so forth. Um, you know, the, Puerto Rico is, is a United States Commonwealth, so we have jurisdiction there. But it's just a matter of, uh, of the kind of work we were doing at the time. There's a really interesting story where you talk about you quite self-reflective to do with a, a challenge that you had on the morning of quite a big operation. Can you take us through that? Well, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, you, you think back of all of all the challenges, and uh, that one was here in, in Tampa, Florida, where um, we were we were getting ready to 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 uh, do a SWAT operation. And one of the things that you always are thinking about is is safety, and have we have we covered all the bases? And you know, you go down the mental checklist of where's the nearest uh, hospital in case somebody gets hurt. Where can we land a helicopter or a series of helicopters if somebody needs to be medevaced? And, you know, it's it's the kind of things uh, the, uh, uh, the the British SAS would would go through. And I noticed that in the meeting, um, it, you know, the questions that should have been asked weren't being asked as as quickly and 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 uh, and as um, efficiently as as normal and one of the things you want to do is is have an eye on all the troops 
who's having a tough time, who's having a bad day, is anybody's mind off the game, just like in, in sports. And finally, I, it just dawned on me, even though I was at the SWAT commander at the time, I, I went to the, uh, the boss in the office and I said, I, I got to take one of your players out. He's, he's not doing well. And he, you know, we had full confidence in me. And he said, yeah, have at it. And I said, well, <laughs> that's me. I got to take my, myself out. I am, my mind is not uh, where it should be. I'm, I'm not responding to things. I don't know what's wrong. And, uh, and um, so, I, you know, I talked about that in, um, in, 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 my, uh, in my book. And, um, and I'm glad that I did it because the, the operate, you know, the number two guy took over. Everything went down. Nobody got hurt. But I had to be honest with myself and have that conversation and say, should I be uh, here doing this? And it was kind of humbling that all of a sudden, and I think it can happen to any of us, we can be physically not well, we can be mentally not well. And that day I was not mentally uh, well. And then um, I think a few days later, I it, it finally, like, you know, you, you don't think about this. My grandmother had passed away and um, a few weeks earlier, and I think it was still bothering me and uh, and it affected me. And I think it, th these are the kinds of conversations that I that I talk about in, in the book that we need to have and say, do we really know ourselves? Do we know our own weaknesses? Do we recognize them? And are we willing to challenge uh, that? And and that's I think it's hard to do because in an organization where you have all these alpha males and alpha females and everybody's always gung ho and, and willing to do anything and everything. Um, every once in a while, you have to deal with uh, with the, the human factor. And uh, and it, it, I, I think that was good for me because I think it made me a better uh, a better agent to deal with other people when they had. Uh, their own issues. You must have had a very good relationship with your superior to be able to go and have that conversation. You must have felt very comfortable with him. Well, we had worked uh, at that point, we had worked uh, 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 several years together and he had known me uh, before and you develop confidence. I mean, every every operation you run, you run by them and, and you go through the list of what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, what happens, for instance, if they open up and fire on us, what happens if they take a hostage and, and so forth. And so you, you have that, uh, you have that bond. Um, but you know, it's, it's not something that's always automatic. And, um, and I was appreciative that he didn't force me to, I think a lot of bad um, supervisors would would have said, "Well, you can do it. Get tough. Get in there and just just do it." Um, and he knew when to push. He he knew my limits, but he knew that something wasn't right. And um, and and that's you know I, I talk about that also. That one of the greatest attributes of a great leader is the ability to observe the, the needs and the wants, but also the fears and concerns of the people they lead. And I, and I think, you know, I look back on history and, and you look at the great generals. And I think that's one of the things that, that stood out is that they had a sense of 
uh, of each and every player and say, well, this unit or this, this man or woman can do that, but we, we mustn't push too far, uh, at, at times. And, um, and, and it goes to, to, to the concept that to, to lead, you have to be able to observe. It's an interesting thought that it's not necessarily the thing that you're running towards that you always need to look out for. It's the thing that you're running away from. Like, what is it that the people that are working underneath you really fear? Because uh, improving motivation or increasing motivation might get more output out of them. But the thing which is going to completely ruin the operation is the fear. So getting that sorted first seems to be the priority. Uh, You nailed it, Chris. The, 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 The thing that is never taught in, in any business school, um, in any management school, is that you have to identify that which you're, everyone may, may, be, may fear, be concerned with, and then the leader's role is to ameliorate that, to diminish its capacity to, to divert, to injure, to hurt, or to, um, or to um, you know, co- co- cause people to, to quiver. And that's one of the things that great leaders do. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about someone in, in a home situation with a small group of five or six people in a, in a church or, or a military organization or as a, as a CEO, is how do you get through this dilemma? How do we attenuate fear? One of the things we're seeing nowadays is we're seeing a lot of leaders who, in fact, inflame fear, who uh, not only at times create a fear, but but flame, you know, um, uh, um, create an atmosphere where it's allowed to to be fertile and percolate to the surface, not realizing that the greatest leaders are always ameliorating fear they're always pushing it down getting it out of the way because they they know that number one fear can turn into hatred and fear can be paralyzing and um and so um you know whether you're looking at the financial industry in 2008 and you look at those people who um came forward and uh, and sort of helped us through this and said, we will deal with this problem a little bit at a time, but we will deal with it. While others were just fanning the flames of, oh, the world's going to end. That's not leadership. Uh, that's the worst kind of leadership. How do you define self-mastery? That's a great question. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's, number one, being in tr- being in charge of taking responsibility for, but also being in control of your emotions. Um, I you know I I, I looked at uh, so many historical examples and realized that oftentimes what has derailed really smart people is their inability to control their emotions. That um, whether it was great. Uh, coaches or, or uh, any, any number of individuals, uh, great military leaders, they were derailed by, by their emotions. The second thing is the ability to focus enough 
on those things that are important to you so that you can then dedicate yourself to that. You know, I talk about um, Joseph Campbell in his great book, The Power of Myth. And, and you know, he, he famously said, you know, f- you know follow your, your, your bliss and people, a lot of people made fun of that, and they misunderstood what that meant. It wasn't you were going to sit your, yourself down on a chair on a sunny, on a, on a sunny beach and your bliss was going to come to you. What he meant was that if you pursue that which you seek, which if you focus on it, if you create the scaffolding of experience, reading, um, reaching out to people that you can achieve that bliss and that doors will be open to you. Um, I look at uh, the American example of Benjamin Franklin, who arrives in Philadelphia with 15 cents in his pocket, learns the trade of publishing, uh, becomes the you know postmaster general of the United States, creates the first the fire department, and then goes on and becomes the first ambassador to 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 France. How do you do that? I mean, what school do you go to? There, there's actually no school now that you can attend to that will teach you that. But what he did was he created the scaffolding. He, you know, in in essence. He created that whole apprenticeship program for himself so that there would be no limits. None. If you go to France right now, the only statute there is of an American is Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> he wasn't president. You know, he gifted to the world the, uh, the lightning uh, uh, arrester. But, but beyond that, he you can create yourself into something and that's mastery and it doesn't matter whether you're Jane Goodall and you're 22 years old and you say you know what i want to be an ethologist i'm going to go to the jungle i don't have a degree she didn't have a degree she was a secretary she says you know what i'm going to study primates and became the premier mind in the world in the subject of primates. She's the first to tell us, hey, not for nothing, but these little guys use tools. <laughs> Isn't that how we define mankind? I mean, it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was a shock. She didn't let anything get in her way. That's what you can achieve when you have self-mastery. So self-mastery, this- sorry, self-mastery is a combination of removing fear and then focusing intently on the thing that you want to do. It's, it's, it's that it's creating, it's controlling your emotions, but being able to focus on the things that are important to you and then creating a, a, uh, an apprenticeship program for, for yourself. It's 10 years ago, Chris, you weren't doing this. You created this for yourself. You worked hard at it. You, 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 you know, I, I'm sure you made plenty of mistakes but you got to where you are at by creating this, um, by having that proper scaffolding 
one bid at at a time. Nobody nobody uh, said, "Oh, here's here's a memo. Follow it, and you'll you'll be interviewing Joe Navarro or Chris Voss or, or somebody else." You did that on your on your own, and and that's what the book is about. That exceptional individuals. They don't have to follow a a particular regimen. They can create their own regimen, and that is true self mastery. Yeah, it's um, it's a strange thing to think about permissionless apprenticeships, as they're called online, where somebody does just strike out on their own. Let's say that there's someone listening who thinks, yeah, I I know that I'm ready to make a change. I know that I'm not in the place that I want to be. How does someone set out on the first step of an apprenticeship? Because I think that's probably going to be the hardest one that's a that's a great question you know experience teaches me that you know i think now it's actually a lot easier um i you know you can go on youtube and and do everything from figure out how to tune your car to to uh to uh, swap out your uh, your bathroom appliances. Uh, I, I think it's so much easier now. When I started in the area of nonverbals in 1971, 72, there were maybe one or two books on, on body language. Uh, now there's an infinite, uh, an infinite number. So I think it's a matter of taking advantage of what resources exist uh, but also re- reaching out. I, I admire people who who re- don't hesitate to reach out and say, "Hey, I'm I'm starting out. Can can you you know can you give me a few tips?" Just the other day, I was talking to somebody and 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 the, and I said, "You've been working for the government for 25 years. You're going out on your own. Here's here's a few tips. Number one, get yourself a nice business card. Don't put too much information on it. Just your name." Uh, email address and uh, and uh, and, a, and and a phone number and that's it. Don't don't label yourself as to what you will do or not do. Number one, number two. If you have a website, don't don't uh, um, take good care of it and don't change your email address every six months as you go from AOL to Yahoo to Roadrunner and whatever. A little bit of advice. Very simple. The guy uh, came back to me later, and he and he said, "You're right. Uh, th- those those things were important. We can we can always find someone that will help us. Um, and there's nothing wrong with with uh, reaching out to others and just ask, how did you do it? Hey, if I came to you and said, Chris, how did you do it? You you've got such a successful program, and I'm sure you could you could say, well, you know, the first thing you do is you humble yourself and you say." I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to learn and then and then make the sacrifices. One of the one of the things that I find is people have grand ideas, but they don't know how to pay the price. They don't know how to to focus, to study, to uh, rehearse, to do things uh, so that you become better at it. Um, just the other day, uh, a student was asking me, you know, well, you know, uh, I, I find writing very difficult. I find writing very difficult. And um, I asked him, well, how many times did you edit what you're working on? And he says, oh, I must have edited it two times. I go, wow. 
I said, do you know how many times I re-edited my complete book? <laughs> it's 26 times from start to finish. And and it could probably use even even more. I said, that's the price that, you know, you have to pay. Uh, you say, you know, you go to see a play, Hamilton. Wow, fantastic. Tickets are expensive. Yeah, they're expensive. How many times did they rehearse? 47 times before anybody saw them. And that's what most people aren't, that price is what people aren't willing to pay. But the swimmers that go out there and work on their technique, the, the cellist that goes out and perfects the technique, the person that, like you, sits in front of the screen and, and evaluates themselves and says, how can I do this better? They're going to be the soonest winners. They're willing to pay the price. And, um, and that's part of mastery. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, people say, well, it, it can be, it can't be done. And my argument is it can be done. The question is your dedication to that. One of the things that I learned a couple of years ago that was so interesting was the difference between having a dream that you like the idea of and having a goal that you're prepared to achieve. So right. a, lot, a lot of people have the dream of, let's say, being a rock star, but they don't mm -hmm. actually like the idea of gigging on the road or practicing playing guitar and having calluses on their hands and reading sheet music and having to go through tons and tons of shitty bandmates and deal with <laughs> record deals and deal with crap managers and sleep in a van and do this. It's like, well, hang on a second. You just said that you wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> like this is being, a, that's what being a rock star is. It's all of that shit until you finally get to play Wembley Arena or somewhere in yeah. Vegas. That's, that's the price that you are paying for this. And a lot of the time I think, people would not put their hand in their pocket and pay the price that they think they would be prepared to pay for the dreams that they have. It's the ones yeah. where you're actually able to get reality to meet up with your pursuit where you end up making progress. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. We, we want to be John Lennon, <laughs> right, with, with 10 number one hits on, under our belts. You don't realize, number one, how many songs he wrote that never made it. You don't realize how many songs they threw away. You don't realize the Beatles, uh, how much time they spent crossing the channel, going to Germany, playing in these little clubs where on a good night they would get 60 to 80 people. And, uh, you know, they were being paid, I think, uh, less than $60 uh, in, in relative uh, dollars for, uh, for performing. And they were sleeping through three to a room. And, uh, and it's not a, ple a pleasant life. Um, everything comes at, at a price. Um, but if, if, uh, if one thing instructed me, and I'm sure you read it, uh, you, you saw the story in, in the book of this, this, this woman who, who does, um, this needlework and, uh, I found her in Brazil and she's no, she was known all over South America for her needlework and she was blind. <laughs> she was blind and she was doing needlework and she had taught herself to thread count with her fingertips, just like if you would read Braille, and she could read the material, and then, I mean, it was, it was, it was just, just being in her presence was, uh, was, was a wonderful experience. 
this is what she wanted to do. This is how she provided for her family. And she was the best. And, um, and she didn't let anything get in, get in, in her way. Um, but again, is what price are you, are you willing to, uh, to, to pay? Observation is like your specialist subject, right? So let's say that we've got a, busy, a beginner who's never yeah. looked at nonverbals before. What are the main things that somebody should be looking for? Well, you know, obviously the, the face is the, the one thing that we, uh, we always uh, uh, notice. Um, something so simple as, you know, when we like someone, we arch the eyebrows, we, 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 we say, hey, yeah, that's uh, right. So we emphasize with the eyes. Chris, when, when you struggle with something, your eyelids come down and they stay down for a little bit. And that lets us know that, uh, yeah, you're struggling w with, with that. Um, you know, our lips tend to compress when we're uh, struggling with something or we're in disagreement. We purse our lips forward when we've made up our mind. Uh, quite often we do, do uh, jaw shifting when we have doubts like, oh, yeah, right, mate. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, there's just, you know, there's, there's, there's so many things, the, the little area between the eyes, uh, called the glabella, we furrow that when we don't understand something or we're in disbelief. There's all sorts of things uh, about the body, but one of the things, uh, for instance, the feet are actually one of the most honest parts of the body because our feet don't have a contract. So socially, if you smile, I smile. So there's a social contract almost uh, everywhere in the world where if Chris smiles, I have to smile back, right? But your feet don't. Uh, if, if, if you don't like somebody, often you'll see them enter a, a room and they'll go, hey, how are you? But the feet are facing away. And uh, we, the our limbic brain, this more primitive area of the brain that's really quite exquisite, doesn't allow us to front uh, things that might be harmful to us. So we, t we turn it away. And you you'll see it with like little two-year-old kids. They'll go, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> it's like, well, nobody taught them that. <laughs> and, yet they, and yet they do it. So, um, so there, there, there's those, uh, those things. Or, um, you know, uh, you, you'll see the uh, commissure touching. Right. So these are the commissures of the mouth, the corners. They'll go. Yeah. You know, you know that there's an issue. There's a concern in, in, in their, their mind. So we we reveal a lot. This obviously this has nothing to do with deception. We, we know that there's no single behavior indicative of deception. But it does give us clues as to what the person may be thinking. And, uh, and that's always uh, useful. Yeah. What about proximity from someone? Uh, that's a big issue because now we know because of the pandemic that people want more space. Uh, proxemics has more to do with uh, culture and personal preferences. So uh, in Latin America, uh, you know, I come from Cuba, and in Cuba, we stand very close to each other. We touch each other a lot and so forth. And then you go to Norway and Sweden, which I have been, and, you know, people stand further apart. There's less touching and, and so forth. So, um, and that's a huge factor when you're trying to establish 
um, um, a relationship is if if you're constantly violating somebody's space, then then basically you're making them uncomfortable, and and that is 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 not um, that that just doesn't work over the long run because all you can think about is, <laughs> come on, buddy, back up. Um, you know, I the 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 brain is the, the brain says certain things is very binary. We're either comfortable or uncomfortable. If you get in an elevator and somebody gets too close to us, you know, we start ventilating, we start touching our neck, we we do all 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 sorts of uh, of things, and it's the same thing that happens when we're in an argument. And uh, after the argument is over, that's when you think of all the clever lines you should have said. But in the argument, you can't think of it because your brain is dealing with the arguing, the emotions. And um, yeah, so we 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 have to be mindful of of space uh, and even where we look at each other. Right. Because you can look at somebody so intensely that it makes them nervous um, women, uh, often complain that, you know, uh, <laughs> men, men have to be re- reminded that stay up here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're, you're not, you're not NORAD. Your radar doesn't have to be all over the landscape. Just right here, guys. And, uh, and, and I agree. I, you know, in fact, the research shows that, um, in, in, uh, in a social setting or a business setting, it really needs to stay, uh, just within this, this area, uh, to make people, uh, uh, comfortable. So, yeah. How can people strengthen their powers of observation then? Let's say it's someone that isn't used to paying this much attention. Well, I mean, there's that's a that's a great question. And it's one that I'm often asked. And I say, well, obviously, buy my books <laughs> and and, uh, and so forth. But that's that's just uh, too easy. Well, there's several things that I've done over the years. And one is um, I obviously I've, I've studied the literature. I've written uh, some of the literature. But one of the things that I personally do is I try to watch films uh, from different, uh, cultures. So, uh, big on my list are from, uh, Brazil, uh, Korea, uh, Persian films. I love, uh, Turkish films, Egyptian films, and, uh, and, and films from, from Mexico. Um, and, uh, and even, and, 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 and some Japanese films. And, and I, and I watch them, uh, to study the body language and to become more focused on the little subtle nuances, uh, something so simple as greeting behaviors, turn yielding behaviors, um, who can look at whom, um, and validating that most of the nonverbals that really matter are universal. I mean, a smile is a smile, uh, a nose wrinkle, Right. I mean, I've seen that in Japan. I've seen it in Korea. I've seen it in in uh, in uh, in Iran. So, you know, um, so I, I study it that way. But there are little tricks uh, you can do. Um, so that can really help you. One of the ones that I use is uh, every once in a while when I go outside, I will. I'll, I will sc- I will do a quick scan and say, okay, how many white cars, how many gray cars, how many uh, red cars, 
and uh, and and sort of work my way through that as I go through a parking lot as I'm driving in, and then as I'm walking away to I'll say, okay, I was right. There were there were two whites, one gray, uh, one one black, and like any skill, observation is um, is a skill set that you have to work at. Uh, for two years, while I was in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, they wanted me to be a supervisor, and I it 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 didn't destroy, but it certainly hampered. Once I went off the desk and was back on the street. Uh, I could immediately tell the difference of how much slower I was at observing. Um, because, I, you know, on a desk, you, you, you look at, you know, you're doing this all day. Out there, you have to have situational awareness. Um, you forget that you're supposed to scan, right? You're supposed to scan uh, the, the world around you, not focus on one little thing at a time. So... Training yourself to to do the quick scan so you can read a whole room uh, is something that uh, that that we teach and and you can become uh, better at it. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on about emotions and one of the elements that you identify in good communication is the primacy of emotions. Is that right. is that the same as controlling your emotions? That what what's the goal that we're trying to get through here? That's that's a good question. Let's differentiate from from a um, from a biological as well as evolu evolutionary perspective, there had to be a quick, efficient system to protect us. And that became our emotional system. And I say that because the, the emotional system has actually very little thinking going on. So if if all of a sudden I were to, if we were in the same room, Chris, and, and somebody brought in a Bengal tiger, we would probably stand or sit very still. We would kind of like not move. We just, can, do you see that beast? Well, yeah, just don't say anything, right? This is your emotional brain working, which says, in the face of fear, in the face of a threat, freeze. The freeze response kicks in. People think it's fight or flight. It's not. It's freeze, flight, fight. And so there's the primacy of, of emotions. If, if, if I walk by you and, and throw a punch, well, if you had to think about it, you know, and say, well, you know, I'm built better than Joe Navarro. My arm, you know, I've got Chris Williamson has guns in his arms. Joe's an old man. You know, you're doing you're doing the math. <laughs> I know you're having a visual. You really don't don't want a countenance. Uh, if we had evolved that way, we'd we'd all be dead. We'd be thinking, is is that a friendly snake or is it ill tempered? So our, you know, our, our brain is kind of hectic. It it evolved to deal with the emotional security stuff first and foremost, and that's why when we're stressed, we forget where the keys are and we forget the clever lines because emotions have primacy. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that we can't take control of our emotions. 
what that means is when we have the opportunity, which is different, when we have the opportunity to reflect, to deal with emotional situations, you know, you have a, a child that does something wrong. Okay, they're going to do things wrong. How do, I, how do I deal with that rather than fly off the handle? That's the difference where you have an opportunity to assess the the emotions of the moment versus something that's reactive. Uh, I mean, if a car's coming at you, you're not going to be able to think too much about that. That's where, and and you know, containing impulsiveness. Right? There's a lot of people that are impulsive. I'm, you know, you ask them, well, how much savings do you have? Well, I haven't been able to save any money. Well, yeah, but you're spending more money on your car than so they're very impulsive with certain things. And that's part of it, too, is is reining yourself in and. Um, and, and that's emotional mastery. Yeah. It's so unfortunate that the high pressure situations that we get ourselves into are the ones where our physiology makes our brains so ill prepared for it. So you do a, a big event, you've got a big talk coming up, it's your first one, a lot's on the line, mm. you really, really need to nail this. And then the night before you don't sleep because you're terrified and you wake up the next morning and you're unprepared. And you, What's happening in the body and the brain when we're going through that sort of pressure situation? It's an awkward conversation with a partner or a boss or there's something that we're concerned about. What's happening to us? What's happening to us is is uh, is uh, is you literally are. It's an electrochemical imbalance. You are your uh, your serotonin levels may be down. You you probably haven't been sleeping. You haven't been eating right, so your sugar levels are off. Um, your cortisol is flowing because you're having this difficult conversation, or you're nervous, or or, or you're tense. And, you know, you, you, people forget the human brain is the most complex thing in the universe without question. The, 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 the sun, that's easy to explain. The human brain, we have no idea what's, what, what's going on. We don't even know how memories are really built. You know, synapses are reaching out to axioms, uh, uh, you know, and all, all sorts of things. We... We respond to the world around us, um, and and for the most part, it, it it's we have a certain amount of control, but it can be overwhelming. And I've been in those situation. Oh my gosh, you're gonna do do your first TED talk. Um, how's that gonna go over? And 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 you worry, but then you start to think, wait a minute, this is where mastery comes in. What do I know that will anyone in the audience know as much about this topic as I will? How many people have arrested a spy here? How many people have arrested seven or eight spies? How many people have uh, listened in on the conversations of the mafia, the the Joe Bonanno family in New York? How many people have uh, investigated 25 homicides in two years? And then you realize, okay, okay, start to settle down. These people haven't experienced what you've experienced. 
you know, it's, well, what if there's PhDs in, in the audience? How many of them have interviewed 13,000 people? You know, then you, then you start to, to, to say to yourself, and everybody can do this. What do I know? How do I know it? Have I rehearsed it? And then you can sort of will yourself back up to where you really belong. Because it's easy to crush yourself and say, oh, my God, there's going to be 600 people there. And these people are my equals and they know stuff. And But, um, but yeah, you can, you can resuscitate yourself uh, if you need to. And sometimes... You know, it's it's so overwhelming that I, I say, find a wall and push it. Just just push it. Just push that wall. And one of the interesting things that happens is that in the effort to push that wall, that you're forcing your muscles to then send signals to the brain, which then begin to create that homeostasis that that we need because your brain can only handle so many things and if you're sitting there pushing just as hard as you can your brain really can't do two things at once it's strange and, that because we have the same reaction uh innately when we stub our toe or you get kicked in the shin because the reason that you rub it is because the brain struggles to send the sensation of both pain and rubbing at the same time Exactly, and and if you and if you get kicked in one leg and then get kicked in the other, trust me, I've played American football. The first one you forget about; it's the second one that takes over. It's the same technique that we teach, for instance, people who uh, all of a sudden are having a panic attack, and you say, squeeze the the nerve that lies here between the commissure of the index finger and the thumb, there's a, a, a nerve there that if you squeeze it really hard, it's extremely painful. And all of a sudden, if, if you do that for about 10 or 12 seconds and you hold that, all of a sudden you find yourself, wh where's my anxiety? Where has that gone? I the brain is, is handling one thing at a time. I had a really interesting experience with this. So I came off a moped in Bali because I'm a awful tourist that can't ride bikes and hit the deck, grazed all one side of me. But because I'm a bro, I decided that we were going to go to the beach club in any case. And the lads that I was with would clean me up when we were there. So we stopped in a pharmacy, continued on to the beach club as basically one entire side of me is covered in blood. Uh, and we sat down and I had a beer and they were like, look, right, we'll, we'll, we'll get started with this. So I had shoulder, elbow, knee and top of foot uh, and that was in order of ascending extremity as well so it was worse the foot was the worst then the knee then so yeah. the guys were going through it and they had um, alcohol swabs they had iodine and then they had dressing so we we're going to do all of this in the middle of a beach club which was an experience and um <laughs> you're, you're right like each time that they did it it was the most painful thing that i'd ever felt and yeah. anyone that's listening that's never had alcohol in an open wound it is it, it burst through the ceiling of what I thought my nerves could communicate. I thought, I understand what pain is. I understand the amount of signals that a part of my body can send to my brain. Nah, fuck off. This can go completely <laughs> through the ceiling. So the, yeah, it's, it's like putting a cigarette out on your skin. Dude, it was, it was insane. So he does the first one and I'm, I'm like, this is, I, I can't believe how painful this is. 
and then he puts a bit of dressing on and then the next one happens and the first one stopped and uh, it, it was it was kind of interesting to see that sort of discreet pain uh receptor going also the funniest part of it whenever i look back the guy that was doing it was being very kind to i'd ruined at least an hour of our day because i'd come off this bike and he was gonna have to spend his time as opposed to speaking to the pretty girls in the beach club he was gonna have to clean me up um <laughs> as he was doing it he knew it was hurting me and i was like gritting my teeth and like continuing to drink beer in between it uh and all that he kept on saying was i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm so sorry and i was like yeah i know but you have to do it so just keep on doing it i appreciate you doing this he's like yeah i know but i'm just so sorry <laughs> inflicting pain on me in the middle of this beach club um so yeah i see i see that and the way that it happens another thing there that got to a point that when he did my foot which was basically the entire top of my foot had come off it was so painful that i started laughing I, 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 that was that was the level of pain that it got to. I I, I burst out laughing. It, it almost didn't hurt because I was like, "This is so painful. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. Insanity. Totally, totally absurd." And um, yeah. yeah, for some reason, I started laughing, which was that's, yeah, a, that's, a bright that's point. Interesting. Um, yeah. By the way, I don't. I don't. Uh, uh, I was also a, a medic in the in the bureau. Don't don't put alcohol on an open wound. <laughs> that's, that's, you know what I mean, I was. I was Dealing with people yeah. that were riggers <laughs> that had taken a first aid course, talking to someone that's never taken any, so they yeah. were they were doing their best. Did you did you did I just hear you right say that you were part of the team that surveilled the Bonanno crime family? Yeah, the, w- one of the things that happens in the bureaus, you know, we we, we only have so many agents, so every once in a while, you're uh, as I think you would say in the in the UK, you would be seconded to uh another group and uh, for about a year i was uh i was loaned or seconded to the group that w- was working on the uh joe bonanno and so here's all these made guys who years later you would you would be watching the sopranos and they said yeah that's how they talked <laughs> you know they'd be yeah forget about it <laughs> which yeah. one was that how was that one bugged was that the one in the house or the one in the car Oh, the uh, well, th- that one I I don't talk about in 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 the in the book. What 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 the Bonanno family was doing was they were going to. This was uh, in the in the 80s, so there were still a payphones. So they would go to payphones around the city, and they would call uh, each other using payphones, thinking that the FBI wasn't sophisticated. Uh, we had what's called a, a roving um, uh, warrant that uh, basically uh, we would uh, intercept what was going on at, at the main junction of uh, AT&T or wh- whoever it was. And, and then we would, get, we would say, okay, they're calling this number and then the warrant applies to to this uh, phone number. So they would they would be sitting there with quarters, dropping quarters, thinking, "Oh, this They're is really the best smart. way to do." It. And we're sitting there, you know, with with recording equipment, uh, 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 getting it all. Uh, but I tell you what, you really learn about um, about morality and the lack thereof. I mean, they're talking about either, well, we either bribe the witness or we just grab one of their family members and torture them. It's like, wow. (laughs) It's like these people have no morals. They're just bothered with outcomes. That's all they cared about. That's all they cared about. I mean, there's a scene in one of the 
in, in a movie about the mafia where you see these guys uh, just for the sake of it, they're trying to take apart a parking meter, which probably has maybe $5 worth of quarters in it. And, and it w- they were relentless in things like this. It, it didn't matter as long as it was an illegal way of getting money. They would spend hours on it, not realizing that if you value yourself at, let's say, $5 an hour, this is actually money coming out of your pocket. It, it didn't matter to them. As long as it was illegal. Oh, so they that's were all they- so seduced by the idea of a criminal activity that that's it. it blinded them sometimes to the actual outcomes that they were getting from it. That's interesting. It, if, if they had opened a pizzeria, they would have probably made, uh, you know, a, a, a dollar, a dollar ten on a dollar investment. They'd be making money, but they didn't want to be legitimate. For them, working was illegitimate, and uh, and they would do anything to uh, to uh, to work against it. Um, yeah, but but interesting. Let's say that someone's having a conversation with an interlocutor, and it's getting a little bit heated, or you can't really get that other person to to communicate in an effective way. What are some of the strategies that people could use to improve their communication in that situation to kind of de-escalate it, to bring it down, and to start getting everyone at the table again? Are you gonna Are you gonna try this at one of the football games there? And the- <laughs> that's not going to happen. I work in a lot of nightclubs, though, so I stand on the front door of a lot of nightclubs, and yeah, very sure, many uh- times people say, "Why am I not coming in? Why well, it's because you don't have any identification? Well, I've got a photo of it on my phone. I'm sorry, I can't accept that." Blah 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 blah. It, this is such a, a a big issue now because we seem to be more intolerant. We we seem to be lacking the uh, the social skills that we once had. One of the things that that I try to tell people is that distance always helps. Uh, angling away, right? So this is very intense, but if you angle away, if you can create some space. Um, e- even something as subconscious as doing a artificial um, uh, cathartic exhale where you go, right? Just doing that exhale lets the other person uh, know at a subconscious level that things need to calm down. I, I learned that trick uh, when I was going through uh, paramedic training at Roosevelt Roads Naval Hospital in Puerto Rico. And the ER doctor said, he, he didn't remember where he had learned it. He said, but a lot of times you come in and the family members are all upset because their son or daughter is injured. And he says, I just found that by exhaling, taking a deep breath and exhaling, then it somehow got other people to to calm down. And I, I've used it ever since. I, I didn't create this, I you know, uh, but I've certainly used it, and there's something about that 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 helps to to calm things down. The other thing is that antagonizes us is too much eye contact. Uh, so uh, reducing the eye contact. So as you said, you're working at the front door, uh, maybe looking over the person or just just around the nose area, but not that direct eye contact. Um, sometimes helps but uh you know there are people who either have so much alcohol in them or um 
you know, or they're just really emotionally unstable. And you just have to be aware that there are limits to what we can do, you know, to the softer voice, to the deeper voice, um, you know, whether we say stop with our fingers uh, together or, or we spread them out and say, no, 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 slow down. Um, it doesn't work that way. Um, there, there's things we, we, we can do, sure. It's a baptism of fire doing de-escalation on the front door of a nightclub. The degree to which people's rationality has been completely divorced is, it's a sight to behold, man. Like, you know, girls, girls tend to get either indignant or hysterical. Um, if they've been, the, the typical one is they've had a bit too much to drink or they've been caught inside doing something that they shouldn't and they get brought out by the door staff and the door staff take them outside and say, look, that's that's you for the nighttime. You're not coming back into this venue tonight. And what happens is the guys that stand on the front door, so the door staff that stand next to me and my boys, um, they're the ones that deal with the yapping for however long it is. And yeah, the, there tends to be a bunch of different reactions from guys. It'll be um, usually try and be, give some sort of rational explanation to try and appeal to the rationality of the door staff. And then if that doesn't work, it goes to insults. Girls tend to, in my experience, be quite sort of indignant and can't believe that it's happened. And then it turns into hysterics. And this is when people have had too much to drink, they're just so, there's mm. nothing that you can say. So, you know, all of the, all of the best ideas in the world, as you're talking about here, they, they just simply go out of the window. There really isn't much that you can do. Yeah, you're then you're really limited. Um, you know, now you've 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 got uh, um, if you're lucky, it's it's alcohol. If if you're pe dealing with people that are on some bizarre homemade drug, uh, it can be really scary because sometimes they 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 present as having no fear. They don't mind escalating. Uh, well, you're basically I mean, not talking to a person anymore. The, the, no. the rules and the procedures that you have in your head aren't the game that that person is playing anymore. Well, we, we see that with, uh, you know, with, with, with these, uh, I guess the, the term that's often used at these games, these hooligans who, I mean, they just, they're almost reptilian. They, they, they just want to fight, scratch, hurt. Um, and, and, and they really have almost no conscience. And I, and I, and I've seen it where one, one, you know, eight hours earlier, they were fine. And now they're so inflamed that, uh, and, and it doesn't help that they're surrounded by their buddies that are uh, crowd mentality, that, crowd mentality, plus a little bit of inebriation is a hell of a drug, hell of a drug. It's scary. It, it can be, uh, be scary. Um, I, I talked to a woman once who was uh, the door person. She was, uh, we call them the, the bouncer. And um, and she, she uh, in fact, I, I talked to her not that long ago, but she had told me this story two years ago. And, and she said, yeah, once they start drinking, it's a problem. But, you know, I try to address it as early as possible. That uh, when I'm in that line, I don't wait till they're right in front of me. If I can begin to address things while they're still further behind, I will say, no, <laughs> you know, so-and-so, 
you know that you're barred from this, that don't even bother uh, coming in. So she tries to address it as far out. And, and she's not a, uh, you know, she's slight built woman, but, um, you know, she's, as we say, she's a, a tough as woodpecker lips. Uh, you don't want to, um, <laughs> you don't want to piss her off. That works really well. So we have a doorman doing what we call scanning. So he'll move up and down the queue. Mm. A lot of our events are for students. And then sometimes there'll just be a group of guys on a stag party that are 40 years mm. old and the guy will just move down the queue and we'll, we will try and get them before they get to the front. Because when you're at the front, there's, it almost feels like a stage. So the pressure's turned up a little bit. And if you have to turn people away there, plus they've wasted more time standing in the queue, which makes them predisposed to be a bit pissy. So yeah, we, um, we use that and it works. It seems to work really well. Talking about, um, having someone angle their body away. Uh, I'm friends yeah. with a guy called Dr. Stu McGill, who's a, a the world's expert in lower back pain, incredibly mm. good physician, unbelievable. Uh, and he, I went to go and see him in Canada. I went to go and get an assessment off him after I'd had him on the show and I went and stayed with him and went fishing and stuff. And when he sat mm. me down, he, he gave me like the full Monty of his experience when you do an assessment. And the way that he has his living room constructed is that he has a single chair, a very nice, comfortable single chair, and that's where the client sits. And then he has an adjacent, so forward and to the side, he has yeah. a couch. So it's like an L, but there's no L on it. And you're sat yeah. at the foot of the L, and he's sat on the upright part. And then directly yeah. opposite where you're sat, he's got a fireplace. And the fireplace yeah. is always on. Uh, and he was talking to me afterward, and he'd said that throughout all of his time as a clinician, yeah. testing and split testing, and trying to get people to open up about their um, imbalances in the way that they move and stuff like that, he found that by having them sat looking forward, looking at a fireplace, and him just sat to one side, still speaking to them, still facing them, but not directly mm -hmm. facing them, he found that that really got people to open up. Uh, it's interesting that you have that same that same insight as well. Well, I I would I would add even this uh, further, um, and I, I I agree with that completely. You know, I. One of the things that I had to do was to get people to confess to being spies. That's a tough job because all the evidence is overseas, right? And the and the Russians, they weren't particularly keen on helping us out. So they're not going to give us the evidence back. So um, getting people to confess was uh, was not easy. But what I found was that um, the most success uh, I, I had was not interviewing people in an office setting or in an interview room. Um, first of all, most interview rooms aren't designed by people who know anything about interviewing. So you see them sitting across from each other. Um, most, most of the espionage interviews that I did, uh, without exception, were usually in hotel rooms that we rented for that purpose and we always sat either uh, on a couch or a combination of couch and, and chairs but we never sat across from each other we always sat at angles and um, i was criticized a lot by a lot of the old timers and you know they would say well just bring them in and you know sit them in across from you and uh, you Tell don't understand yeah, you don't understand. I, I'm I'm doing interviews that will last uh, six seven hours, and I don't and I want this person to 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 open up, 
and uh, and that's and that's how I did it. Um, I I understood, as I'm sure your your doctor friend understood, that too much eye contact affects interviewing. That allowing the person to drift off, to be comfortable, to um, be reflective, uh, is often better than um, you know than what you see on uh, on television. And um, and I still teach that when I teach interviewing, I you know I I say please do not sit directly in front. It's it's actually easier to resist someone when they're in front of you, right? You say no, and I say no. <laughs> you telling me no? You know it's easier to fend somebody off than somebody's next to you. <laughs> somebody's next to you. It's pretty tough to to argue with them. It's like well we're both on the same side. And that's what I tried to create that, uh, you know, look, the documents are already on the other side. That's that's already taken place. Now, how do we work our way through this? Because the federal government's not going to go away. The FBI is not going away. I'm not going away. And you're sitting next to me. So how do we how do we move forward? And it, it was always amazing to me how people are willing to. OK, well. We somehow have to work our way through this where if you put them in front, oh, it's so much easier to resist somebody. Um, yeah. How can people become better at small talk? That's tough for me because uh, I'm actually an introvert and, uh, and I find, you know, groups um, a, a challenge. Uh, the easiest way is do not talk about yourself. I when when I'm at a party or with a group, I don't want to talk about myself. I know what I've done. I, I really don't. What I want to know is what do you do? What are you interested in? Uh, there's a park nearby here, and sometimes I I'll take the dog there, and I want to know what everybody does, and I'm fascinated that. One guy's an attorney, but he's really into photography. The other one is a grandmother, and uh, and she's uh, really into, into her grandkids more than she is into her own daughter. I, that's what I want to know about. I, I want to know about them. I want I want to know all the little things that they've found, what what movies they're watching, and and so forth. I think it's really easy um, if if you can just at some point, turn it so that we're talking about them. Um, I think it's a little harder for me because somebody will say, oh, this is Joe Navarro. He's a he's an author. And, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that. I, I really I really want to talk about what other people uh, What if you uh, come up against someone who is another you, though? Because then you're going to ask them questions about them and they're going to go, I don't want to talk about me, Joe. I want to know about you and your illustrious history. Yeah. So, Stalemate. So, yeah. You have to have a backup plan. And that backup plan is I'll find one story that I've told before and it's uh, I, I, I consider it my giveaway. And I said, well, you know. One of the uh, more interesting things was uh, this defector. I was, we were trying to get him to defect, and I and I sat down with him, and um, we were going back and forth, and he didn't want to leave. The, he, he was on the other side of the uh, uh, Warsaw Pact. Um, I still can't 
reveal what country he was in. And we were sitting there in a hotel room, and, and finally I, I just grabbed his hand. He was an older gentleman, and, and I said, listen, I understand completely. Uh, I would be scared too. And I don't know what drove me because I was – I think I was only – 29 years old at the time I just continued to hold his hand and he began to cry and uh you know and he and he said I I can't continue to live this lie and uh, and that's when he defected it's a good story that's a good way to start a <laughs> well you, you you know it's it was something that was different. It's it's a story, you know, people think, oh, you know, you came through the door, you threw in a flashbang, boom, breacher in, <laughs> boom, send the dogs, boom, send the tear gas in. Now we prance in and... And hold no, his hand. It, yeah, it's that, that, that's what spy catching is all about, is, is, uh, is, is human behavior. Um, yeah, but you gotta you gotta be careful with 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 your audience. But I'll tell you, in, in the book, you know, you probably read the story um, where I'm in San Francisco and they're announcing on the radio who just won the Boston Marathon, and and once again, it was somebody I think from uh, uh, from Kenya or uh, Ethiopia, or one of those great uh, runners from that were, and the guy driving it. Uh, he says, do you mind if I listen? I, you know, go ahead, listen. And, and he, he says that he's, he's from my tribe and I, you know, and the rest of the day, uh, as he drove me around was listening to him talking about, uh, how he grew up, um, in, in that part of the world, which I so know so very little about. And then he revealed something that was really eye-opening. And to this day, it's one of the most worshipped conversations that I ever had because I didn't talk about, you know, I didn't say, oh, you know, I'm here in San Francisco because I'm going to give a big talk. I, I didn't want, I wanted to listen to this cab driver who then said the most interesting thing I've ever heard. And I said, why do so many people from this part of the world are such great runners? And he said something that just, rattled me and he said we didn't we didn't have newspapers or or magazines or radios and i go what you know i'm i'm figuring he's going to say well we have great genetics and uh, you know we we uh, our tribes were isolated and he said we didn't know what world records were so we just ran fast everywhere <laughs> think about that <laughs> we just ran until <laughs> we dropped dead that's brilliant mate that's that hits it right on the nail if you don't know what the goal is if you don't know that oh yeah you got to stop at 26 uh miles then then you'll run 30 and if you don't know that you're supposed to run at 98 uh, percent of, of your ability you don't have a coach telling you slow down on the first three-fourths of the we just ran everywhere. <laughs> wow. I saw a video not long ago of a school child looked like perhaps Kenya running to school. I think he must have missed the bus if there was a bus. And it's a car yeah. driving driving behind him. And the kid must be maybe 11 or something, 11 or 12. And it's the most gorgeous running form. 
just absolutely beautiful turnover speeds nice long rangey strides the head staying completely still the arms are moving he's got his backpack on and it's just good it's like when you see a, a leopard go in slow motion it's just this gorgeous yeah. running running style yeah. and you just think that's that kid's 12 probably never had an athletics <laughs> coach in his life it doesn't no. surprise me it doesn't surprise me that they dominate distance running at all no. and, and, and the and altitude and the, the temperatures and so on and so forth and the long carbs and the the good builds perfect and and uh and running every day and that's how he grew up he said we just ran everywhere and and you think about that i mean we get in a car to go a mile to pick up the newspaper and 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 think about that you're right about about their running styles they they sort of they maximize efficiency because obviously if if everybody's running every day, you're going to model whoever's the fastest. And it turns out when that, when that head holds still and it's the body that's fully gimbaled, you know, just like a, like a, like a, a zebra uh, or a, uh, a, a, a cheetah. But then you think, Oh man, what's going to happen the day we put really good running shoes on this kid. Terrifying. And you say the, the Boston Marathon. It's like over and over again, um, and and they do it with such love and appreciation for for that. Um, but but that's that's my idea of small talk. My idea of small talk is to to listen to what other people uh, uh, people say. But I have to tell you at the same time. Uh, nothing, uh, is, is more painful than, than to listen, to listen to people brag, uh, uh, you know, over and over about themselves. And I just, yeah, I'm too old. I just walk away. We've talked about being exceptional today. What would you do? How would you design a person if you wanted to make someone as unexceptional as possible? What would be the personality traits and the characteristics and the worldview that someone would have? that is the complete antithesis of what you're trying to achieve? Not curious. A, a person that is completely not curious about anything, not themselves, not the world around them, that think they know it all, think it all, uh, and so forth. Someone who is uh, rigid in their thinking, who is uncompromising, who is unwilling to make any sacrifice and wants everything handed to them. Um, someone who has no empathy, someone who takes no action when action is needed, who has no concept of providing uh, comfort for others. I've never been asked this question, Chris. I think it's a profound way to ask that question, and I thank you for it. That is the antithesis. And, and, and when, you, when you say it that way, you think, oh, my gosh, there are people like that. And they're horrible. They, they're so rigid in their thinking. They're unyielding. They're not curious at all. They, they don't want to know anything about you. They don't want to explore the world around them. Everything is, uh, is so rigid and suspicious, and, and they don't want to take any action to, to, uh, to, to help. That is the antithesis of, um, of the exceptional, because the, the exceptional really are about 
um, providing psychological comfort. That you know, they're about helping themselves, but not at the expense of others. Um, they want everybody to to succeed. They want everybody to have fun, to to enjoy life, and um, and I think that's what really sets exceptional people apart. Joe Navarro, ladies and gentlemen, be exceptional. Master the five traits that set extraordinary people apart. Will be linked in the show notes below. And if people want to check out what else you do, where should they go? Uh, please uh, come to my website, joenavarro.net, and uh, they can see all my books and videos. And uh, soon they'll see my interview with you, Chris. Exciting. <laughs> that, obviously, the pinnacle of your career so far. Uh, Joe, thanks very I, much for I, today. I've got it. I got to tell you, you're one of the best uh, uh, interviewers that, that I've dealt with. I love your, your questions, so thank you. 